Amen. Well, good morning again, and happy Palm Sunday as we think about uh, the Passion Week that lies before us. And uh, so we have been in this passage before on Palm Sunday of Luke chapter 19, and very familiar passage. And you know, that's the danger is when a passage is familiar. Some of you have probably heard this passage uh, since you were little, if you've been involved in a church that teaches the Bible. And so for all of us, it is a challenge a bit to have our eyes and our hearts open to what God has for us today. Uh, I've told you about many of my minor hobbies. Another one is reading the crime reporter in the newspaper. And uh, I've, there's two reasons for that. First of all, I want to make sure my name doesn't occur there. And uh, I'm just checking. And then that your name is not occurring in the crime reporter uh, in the local newspaper. Uh, actually, where we're from over in the Flathead Valley of Montana, Kalispell, they have a great, oh, I don't know who writes the crime reporter, but it's very, it's very funny. You know, it's kind of like uh, what dumb crooks, crooks do is basically they could title that one. Uh, but uh, one of my favorites uh, comes from a newspaper back east in Covington, Kentucky, and there was a woman named Alice Pike who showed up in the crime reporter. And uh, she was, as I read uh, her crime, uh, two questions came to my mind. Uh, she's the one who tried to pay for her Walmart purchase with a $1 million bill. And I had two questions. First of all, does the U.S. Treasury make a $1 million bill? And secondly, I was thinking, what was she thinking, you know, paying with a $1 million bill? Uh, the answer to the first question is no, the U.S. Treasury does not make a bill with that many zeros behind the one. And so that tells you a few things. Uh, I don't know how high they go, but that one is not being made, to my understanding anyway. Uh, I don't know what Alice was thinking trying to pay for her uh, purchase with a $1 million bill, because she only bought $1,675 worth of uh, merchandise at this particular Walmart, and what's amazing is she expected change. And uh, you really think, think about that for a minute. I, my math is not really strong. I'm not a good mental math person, but I calculated that that's really a lot of change. <laughs> she was expecting $998,325 in change. Now, can you imagine the cashier on the thing saying, we need 10s and 20s on uh, cashier number 12? You know, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Plus, how is she going to get all of that stuff in her car, the merchandise as well as all of that cash? How is she going to do that? Uh, but Alice helps remind me, and when I read the crime reporter, it helps remind me of sometimes how irrational human beings are. And sometimes we have really, really unrealistic expectations. It's great to have hope, but sometimes there are some real unrealistic expectations such as Alice had on that particular day. Well, Easter is season or Resurrection Sunday, and this Passion Week is upon us again. And uh, so we return to uh, the account of Palm Sunday here, as uh, Dr. Luke has recorded it for us. It's interesting that all four Gospels record this event and if you have a harmony of the Gospels where they have lined up each one of the Gospels on the same page on those events, you'll see that all four Gospels record what we call the triumphal entry. One of the dangers is allowing a very familiar story to an ethnic to put us to sleep. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have tried that word. 
I need those of you in the medical field to help me with that one. Okay. But, uh, you know, really, when you look at the historical account in Scripture of that whole week and the events of the week, it is uh, uh, amazing. The radical power of what God has done, the radical power of how God has changed lives for the last 2,100 years uh, because of those events of those few days and what Jesus Christ has done. Earlier in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, actually, verses 18 through 20, Jesus had asked those close disciples around him two questions. The first one is, who do the people say that I am? And, of course, they came up with various answers, Elijah, John the baptizer, so on. And the second one, he got really personal, and this one always haunts me a bit as I read it again and again. But who do you say that I am? And that is a fundamental question for each one of us. Each human being has to come to the conclusion and say, at least to themselves, who do I say Jesus is? These questions are penetratingly relevant. Every generation, every age, every country, every person, it is a question that needs to be answered, posed and answered. And uh, each person needs to grapple with their understanding of that. And so... As we look at this passage in Luke, as Luke has recorded it for us, and those events of that day that we call it Palm Sunday, even though it was not, did not occur on a Sunday, if you look on the back of your bulletin insert, there's a chrono- chronology of Jesus' life, and uh, the, the uh, <clears throat> triumphal entry occurred on a Monday, March 30th of 33, And uh, we will talk about that more in a moment, but that chronology may be helpful for you in the life of Christ. So this so-called triumphal entry, we know that it ends in tears, in loud laments, as we're going to see in a moment. Uh, But we are going to look at this account that Luke gives us, and it teaches us about four different responses to Jesus, four different responses to this one who is claiming the Messiahship of Israel, the one long promised through the prophets of the Old Testament, and he is fulfilling those things. And we need to learn some important elements about how people respond to Jesus Christ. You know, at the point where Jesus is entering, it's during the Passover season. He's coming up for Passover, and Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims. Josephus, the great uh, Jewish historian, although he was known to inflate his numbers, estimated that there were some 2.7 million people in Jerusalem coming for Passover. He based that on counting the number of lambs that were sacrificed on the Temple Mount during the Passover. Uh, But anyway, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. All of these pilgrims coming from the four corners of the earth, basically, Jewish pilgrims coming to observe Passover, this, this event which is longing for the coming of the Messiah. And here is the Messiah coming into their midst. And we see four responses to him in this entry. And uh, we're going to see that there was obedience, ovation, opposition, and obliviousness. And the question is, is where do I fit in? Which response would best describe me? Which response would best describe you? Back in chapter 19, verse, excuse me, back in verse uh, 11, uh, Jesus is starting to teach a parable here. I just want to look at this verse quickly. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
The kingdom had been promised throughout the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus and John the Baptist had taught that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, what they were meaning was this time when the Messiah would come, reign on earth, and be the Savior of all of mankind. And so they were looking forward to this Messiah, this rescuer. And, of course, remember the historical context. Jerusalem and the Jewish people were under the boot heel of the Roman uh, the Roman world and the Romans, you know, they called it the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. And it was used with a boot, boot heel and a sword is how they kept peace through the then known world. And so they were oppressed and it was a violation to them to have these Gentiles overlording in their whole country, especially in Jerusalem. And so they were looking for a earthly king. They were looking for a Messiah who would rescue them from their current troubles being under the oppression of Rome. But in verses 28 through 36, we see that there was obedience unto Jesus the Messiah. This is the compliance of the convinced. As you read through the Gospels, we see different responses of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. His closest disciples, at least 11 of them, not the 12th one, of course, Judas, who would betray Jesus in just a few days, uh, were convinced that he was the Messiah. They may not have understood everything. In fact, we go through the book of uh, Luke and into the John and other Gospels, and we see that uh, they didn't quite understand the full picture. They, too, were anticipating an earthly reign of the king. But in verses 28 through 36, we see this obedience uh, by these who are convinced that this Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, Jesus Christ, Christ means Messiah, the one come and the promised one to rescue Israel. And they notice in verses 28 and 29, they're in proximity. One who's obedient to Jesus Christ lives in proximity to him. It's not a Sunday-only event. It's not when you think about it. It is in proximity to the one that is near you, and that is Jesus Christ. It tells us in verse 28 that he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, and he sent two of his disciples. And so they were nearby, and these ones who were following him, these 11, these 12 people, men who are following him, are convinced that he is the one. And so he sends them out, and they also live by faith. Not only do they live in proximity or nearness to Jesus Christ, but they have faith in him, because in 30 and 31, Jesus Christ it demonstrates his ability to know all things, and he declares his Messiahship. Look at verse 30, saying, he gives them this command, go into the village ahead of you, there as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat, untie it and bring it here. And then he adds, if anyone asks you, are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. And so he is foretelling what they are going to find, and they are convinced that he is right, and so they follow in obedience to do what Jesus Christ has told them to do. And they are convinced so much that they love him, and they are living it out. There is action that follows their faith. We've been going through the book of James, and it talks about living out the faith you say you believe. And here are these men, they don't know the whole story, and yet they are following obediently what Jesus Christ has asked them to do. In verses 32 through 36, we have a very famous picture. And so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them, okay? Proving his omniscience, his ability to know all things. And as they were untying the colt, here it is, here comes the owners. Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And then they brought it to Jesus, threw their coats on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And he was going there, spreading their coats on the road. J. 
Jesus Christ demonstrates his power over creation by riding an unbroken colt. This was a donkey, but a young donkey, a colt that was unbroken. Jesus had demonstrated his power over creation before when he stilled the Sea of Galilee. And when he raised people from the dead, he had power over his own creation. And Matthew records this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is the foretelling hundreds of years before of what would happen when Jesus came to Jerusalem, when the Messiah would come. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why would he ride in on a donkey? Because a king in those days, in those those periods, if they were coming in peace, they would ride on a donkey. And Jesus went beyond that and rode on an unbroken colt. Uh, I don't know about you, but every horse I've been on is throwing me, you know, even ones that are trained. In fact, I've gotten to the point of telling people I was a saddle bronc rider because I got thrown every time. My dad's horses, my sister's horses, and, uh, and my dad would always say, you've got to be smarter than the horse. Well, you know, that was the mantra as I was growing up. You've got to be smarter than the horse. Well, Jesus had power over this animal and controlled it because he had power over all things. These two followers of Jesus were not told who they are. Some have speculated it was Peter and John who followed in obedience, uh, but they responded in faith and love and confidence in what God was doing. They were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, and uh, Jesus is going over the Mount of Olives. Now, some of you I know have been to Jerusalem, and you've seen the Mount of Olives. It's really a ridge to the east there and looks down. It's about 300 feet higher than the Temple Mount there, and so Jesus is coming up from Uh, the eastern side, moving west across that ridge and coming down towards Jerusalem. And as he begins, there is great cheering or ovation of Jesus the Messiah. There is great ovation going on. There's cheering by the curious, if you will. We move from those who were convinced to the curious. They're intrigued by miracles. Look at verse 37. As soon as he's approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he's on top, coming just starting down, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they have seen. Isn't it interesting that they did not praise God for all the teaching they had heard? It was about the miracles they had seen. Now, I have to point out here that in the New Testament, not all disciples are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciple simply means one who is a follower. Every rabbi of the day had disciples that followed them around, listened to their teaching, and were adherents of their worldview and what they taught. And Jesus was known as a rabbi, uh, but he was more than a rabbi, and he had this following of disciples. And how can I say that not all disciples are saved? Is because if you go to John chapter 6, verse 66, there is some hard teaching going on in John chapter 6. We won't take the time to go there, but I'd encourage you to read that chapter. And at the end of that, or towards the end of it, it says the teaching was so hard that some of the disciples ceased to follow Jesus. Now, you have to wrestle with your theology here because if you say all disciples are believers in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, that passage would tell you that they lost their salvation. But I believe that they were never saved in the first place. They were simply following like these people are because of what? The miracles that Jesus did. 
oftentimes, and I must caution you, oftentimes we think of our unsaved loved ones and say, oh, if Jesus would just do a, a miracle and somehow they would come to know that he's really God. Well, he did it in his day when he walked on this earth and people still did not believe in him. They still rejected him as the Messiah. But there's great ovation. There's cheering. In the four Gospels, Matthew said it was a very large crowd. Mark says many people. Luke here says many people. John says a great cloud. The incurious are intrigued by miracles. And there is so much false Christianity in our society today based around that whole issue of the miraculous. Some people say they need a miracle a day. Well, the most fantastic miracle is the salvation that Jesus Christ provides, opening the eyes of the unbeliever to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and everlasting life. That is a major miracle. And that is the one, as you look around this room, and there are people you know who are believers in Jesus Christ, they are walking, talking miracles. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, remember you're a miracle of God's grace and his mercy. And if we would remember it every day, it would change how we view our current environment and where we're at. And the curious are demonstrative in their acclaim. They are curious about Jesus. Remember, he did miracles just before that. <clears throat> he had, uh, was going to raise Lazarus, and he, Zacchaeus came to uh, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the miracles he had done, feeding of the 5,000, but they are demonstrative, and it's a reflection of Psalm 118, verses 25 through 28, and also of Revelation 7, 9 through 12, looking into the future, as John writes there. And so they worshipped him, or they acclaimed him. And notice this, they shouted, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. They are attributing him as a king. Remember, in their preaching that the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is at hand, a kingdom always has a king. And yet the kingdom is not now. It is not then. And Jesus Christ, I believe, was offering it fully. He'd already been rejected by the national leadership, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. He had already been rejected by them. But here he is presenting himself as the coming king, as the Messiah, the one who will bring in a righteous kingdom, the savior of the world. And so we have the convinced and the curious, and they're infatuated. The curious are infatuated. And yet there's another group, the intimidated leadership of Israel. Look at verses 39 through 40. We see the opposition of Jesus, the Messiah. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so the callous or the opposition, the challengers always oppose the truth. This is criticism by those who challenge him. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus was always being challenged by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a a religious political group. At this time, it's estimated there are some 6,000 Pharisees in Israel, and they ran the show, basically. And they were the ones who were the ones that laid all the heavy burdens of many man-made laws upon the people. And uh, they were opposing the truth of who Jesus Christ was. But they were confounded by the reality. Jesus Christ, in verse 40, is, this is his response. He answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. That's an idiom, again, showing Jesus' power over his own creation. Now, I've seen pictures of Jerusalem. Some of you have been there, and it's just full of rocks, isn't it? There's lots of stones in the Middle East, lots of uh, ge geological features in the Middle East. And that's a parable in action that Jesus is teaching. 
He said, if these people don't cry out and acclaim me, even the stones will do that. And they'll take care of it. All of his creation knew exactly what was happening. Even if the Pharisees and others did not know what was happening, Jesus Christ's creation did. So we have the obedience, the ovation, the opposition against Jesus the Messiah. And then verses 41 through 44 is the obliviousness towards Jesus the Messiah. Jesus looks out over the city. Look at verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he's still not in the city. He saw the city and wept over it, probably just over the crest of the Mount of Olives where it spread out before him, the temple mounts down there below him. And he could see this whole city and all the tents of the pilgrims and the temporary shelters they had built and the place teeming with people and all of these people around him shouting and uh, screaming for help and salvation. And the callous are willfully blind to the truth. And Jesus Christ saw the city and wept over it. This is not the quiet kind of weeping that we saw at Lazarus's tomb, but this was a loud lamentation. This was crying out. Everybody got their, their, near him got it, gave them his, their attention. And so he tells them, he said, if you had known in this day, in this day, if you write in your Bible, I would underline that, in this day, and that goes back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This was the specific time that, Jesus, that God had prophesied through uh, Daniel that this Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. On the back of your bulletin insert, and we're not going to delve into this deeply, but in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Daniel talks about the 70 weeks. And he talks about 69 weeks and the 70th week. And it kicks off uh, when Artaxerxes was in power, the, his 20th year, in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8. And I'll let you study this out later, but that's kicked off the prophetic calendar for the 70 weeks of the Messiah. And so in March 5th, 444 B.C. is when it kicked off. And then you do some math and you come up with March 30th, A.D. 33, the triumphal entry uh, on uh, in March 30th of A.D. 33, Luke 19, 28 through 40, where we're at. This day was designed and determined by God well beforehand, and he was carrying out and fulfilling it. Between the 69th week and the 70th week, the 70th week is the tribulation that is still yet future. We have the church age, so we're in this church age. And the 70th week is yet to come, and it's split into two halves. I was not good enough with my chart making to put two halves there. So you'll have to write that in, the first half and the second half under the 70th week. But we see that there was exact moment. In fact, uh, Harold Honer, who uh, wrote the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, determined that there is the exact time that he even entered Jerusalem. And it was perfect and precise in what God has done. In the 19th century, Sir Robert Anderson did a great chronology. It's a classic one, but he had the jimmy around with the math to make sure that Christ was uh, crucified on a Friday. And Harold Honer has done a much better work, and it's supplanted Sir Robert Anderson's work from the 19th century. And so we see that Jesus Christ entered on that Monday, March 30th of 33 A.D., and then we can pinpoint uh, when the crucifixion was through these things. But uh, the callous are willfully blind to the truth. Jesus says, if you, <clears throat> if you had known this day, well, what is implied here is they should have known this day because of the prophets, the law and the prophets, which foretold exactly when this day would happen. 
the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the religious teachers of Israel should have known exactly that that was the day. That was the time Messiah would be presented into Jerusalem. And we see there that Jesus went on, if you'd known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. So they are hidden from their eyes. They were willfully disobedient. They were willfully not responsive to what God is doing here. And this begins what is called an oracle of judgment. And Jesus Christ, it's a pattern set up in the Old Testament, and it's an oracle that he is declaring what is hidden is going to become real. And you know what's troubling here is Jesus' comment at the end of the narrative, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize and welcome God's personal visit. And so for each one of us, wherever we are, some of us have had that encounter where Jesus Christ opened our eyes to the truth of the good news of what he has done in the gospel. And by believing in him, you can have everlasting life. And yet many people miss that in our day and age. And it may be as simple as something like an invitation to a church ministry. It may be a gospel tract that they have discarded or a book or a message that they have ignored or something on their television or on social media that they've ignored. It's really possible that there are people in our day and age who should know better and have ignored it, and it's, they've missed it. And uh, it happened to this whole city of Jerusalem. Uh, they said, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. They considered him re- right religious. They never acknowledged him as the Son of God. Earlier on in, <clears throat> let's see, I think it's in chapter, yeah, chapter 18, the end, blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. And he cries out there. He says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is an admonition or an acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. Bartimaeus, he was blind, but yet he knew that this Jesus was the one who is the Messiah. We don't know how he knew, but he knew. He must have been paying attention to being taught from the prophets, law and the prophets. And so the callous are willfully blind to the truth. Bartimaeus, who was physically blind, had his eyes open miraculously, but he knew the truth before that even happened. And the callous failed to recognize their opportunity. Look at verse 44, or 43 again. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave Uh, in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time, there's time again, of your visitation. 37 years from this date, almost to the day, uh, General Titus, the Roman General Titus and the 10th Roman Legion threw up barricades and siege ramps around Jerusalem. In 66 AD, there was the Jewish revolt and had been going on against Rome, led by the Zealots and others. And Rome was stamping it out, and Titus came in. Titus was 31 years old when he was the general at that time in 70 AD. He hadn't been born yet when Jesus prophesied what was going to happen. And Titus came in, and it was a great victory for Rome. In fact, if you've been to Rome, you've seen Titus's arch. It's still there today. And it is an honor and a celebration of Titus's victory over Jerusalem. In fact, inside of it, there's all sorts of... Uh, uh, relief carvings which demonstrate and uh, hearken back to this destruction 
of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It began on the 14th of April in 70 AD, and Titus destroyed all of Jerusalem. Josephus said there was 1.1 million people slaughtered in that uh, destruction of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure, although it was horrific, and some 95,000 were carried off into slavery, many to be used in the Roman games as gladiators. Uh, and so the triumphant, triumphal entry, uh, and you think about this day of March 30th, A.D. 33, and all of these pilgrims were rushing to get their Passover lamb so they could observe Passover. And the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was right in their midst, and it was hidden from them. They did not see it. Jesus Christ officially presented himself. He was identified before the nation as the Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed in his transfiguration. But it was here in this triumphal entry that Christ was made the, made the official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. I shall also add, there is coming a time where there will be the triumphal entry. The Lord will truly make a triumphal entry. We can read about it in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. It's still yet future for us. Where John writes there, Then I saw the heaven opened, and here came a white horse. By the way, that is a horse of warfare. The one riding it is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many... A diadem crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies which are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on white horses. From his mouth extends a sharp sword that with it he can strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. He has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Are you ready for that day? That's the question. Are you here today as one who's convinced that Jesus is the Savior? Are you simply curious about Jesus? Are you a challenger of who Jesus is? Or are you just simply callous that you're, not, you're refusing to believe who he is? We are waiting for his return. We are waiting for the one who saves us from our sins and has saved us through his death burial, and resurrection. I like the story about a student at the University of Texas. His name is Steve Winger, and uh, he had his final college exam, and it was a logic class, and it was well-known, had a reputation for having very, very difficult exams. The professor before this final exam told him that they could bring as much information to the exam as they could fit on a piece of notebook paper. And most students crammed as many facts as possible on their 8.5 by 11-inch piece of notebook paper that they could take into the exam with them. But one student walked into class, put a piece of notebook paper on the floor, and had an advanced doctoral student in logic stand on the paper. The advanced student told him everything he needed to know. He was the only student to receive an A. The ultimate final exam will come when we stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven? And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that on our own we cannot pass that exam. There's no way. You can put as many facts on a piece of paper 
in your life that you want, but that will not get you in. Our creative attempts to earn eternal life fall short, but we have someone who stands for us. And it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the one through his death, burial, and resurrection has given us the future and a hope. Perhaps you're here today and you're unsure if you're going to end up in heaven. If you were to die today, would you be in heaven immediately? Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. What a wonderful thing. I remember there was a woman who uh, was part of our congregation here. She was quite a character. And she said, she always told me, she said, I think of death as like just going to sleep and waking up in a new place. And I said, yeah, that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. You know, it's just absent from the body, present with the Lord. I like that. But uh, are you sure about your relationship? The Bible makes very clear declarations that you can be assured and have the security of knowing that you'll be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can settle the issue today by believing in Jesus for everlasting life. The Gospel of John puts it so simply. If you're in doubt about that, read the Gospel of John and keep reading it until you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and what the requirements for salvation in heaven are. And, of course, I've said this many times, uh, that I know that Romans 3.23 teaches us, for all have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And God will not have us in an unsaved state in heaven with him. But it also promises that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. John 3.16, of course, a very simple verse that probably everybody knows, and it's the, the, the consequence and the requirement. When you look at Scripture, what is the consequence? What is the requirement? John 3.16 tells us that the condition for that consequence is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will have everlasting life. And that's God's grace. That's his mercy and his loving kindness today. Make sure you know where you're going. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day.